If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. AmericanMinute.com actually sent out a free daily history email called American Minute, and it covers lots of things in the past that sort of have application to what's going on today. Awesome. Awesome. We have got uh, William Federer with us today here on our broadcast, Coast to Coast and Boulder to Boulder on TuneIn, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. So AmericanMinute.com uh, is the website. Uh, give us some details on what American Minute is. Well, uh, it's a radio spot that airs on networks all across the country. And it started as uh, emailing out the a transcript of the American Minute. It was a one-minute spot. And the email list kept growing and growing until now it's got pictures in it. It's got all kinds of links and very interesting stuff. And uh, it covers American history, world history, famous holidays and events and people, and sort of gives you the inside, the other side of the story. Uh, or as uh, the radio host you know, once said, that's the rest of the story. But it, it really helps bring it alive. One of the Quotes I like is from uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning historian on John F. Kennedy's staff. And the quote is History is to the nation what memory is to the individual. So, have you ever met an individual who was lost in memory? They forgot who they are, they forgot who you are. It's sad. Well, guess what? We have national Alzheimer's. We have, we've lost our national memory. Here we are, the freest country the planet has ever seen, and we forgot how we got here. And as a result, we're just sitting there letting all these freedoms get taken away from us. And it's, like, important to learn these histories, and that's what I bring out. And, you know, the long and short of it, there's 6,000 years of recorded human history. Writing was invented around three or 4,000 B.C., Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamia Valley. So three or 4,000 B.C., we're around 2,080. That's around five or 6,000 years of human beings writing down human records. And, uh, which is really not that long. 6,000 years is only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. We've all met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it, maybe a grandmother. We're talking 60 grandmas, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded <laughs> human history. Okay? And um, anyway, uh, what I observed in reading through all these records of history is the most common form of government is a king. They go by different names, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, Nimrod. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger. Because with military advancements, you can kill more people. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. Stone, <laughs> iron is stronger than bronze, steel is stronger than iron, gunpowder and stirrups and so forth. And uh, But there's this global goal for to rule the world. And uh, by the time and I, you know, the founders come along, the king of England was the most powerful king the planet had ever seen. He controlled 13 million square miles and a half a billion people. All of wow. India, a quarter of the world's population right there. So the king of England was like a globalist. <laughs> yes. And this, uh, this trend to have power concentrate goes all the way back to what I believe, the fall in the garden and Cain killing Abel. It's just one king taking a kingdom from another king. 
And uh, the selfishness in the human heart, St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. And so you put some babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully hogging the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. You put some people in the woods, one of them is the Indian chief. Then you put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And all a king is, in a sense, is a glorified gang leader. It's a hierarchical system, like a pyramid, where if you're friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason, or you're a slave. And so this pyramid structure to society uh, keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until the king of England. And America's founders decided uh, to break away from the king and actually flip it and make the people the king. And so it's a polarity-changing world government. Instead of top-down, ruled by some guy at the top that thinks he's divinely appointed, it's bottom-up. It's we the people. And so that's the brilliance of America. People say, was America ever great? Yeah, if you like deciding where you want to live, what you want to do with your life, who you want to marry, what food you want to eat, what clothes you want to wear, what church you want to go, if you want to make decisions for your life, you like America. <laughs> if you want some dictator on top dictating to you what you got to do, um, then, you know, you can go to a Sharia country ruled by, a, 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 a you know, a, a Ayatollah or something, or a king or a czar or a El Chairman Mao or something. And so, so we have, is unique in America, a republic is the people are king ruling through representatives. A pure democracy is the people are king ruling directly. And so a pure democracy only ever worked on a small level, like a city, where everybody is at the market every day to talk politics. Yes, the people are the king. The word citizen comes from Greece. It means co-ruler, co-king. So we're all citizens, we're all co-kings. And in Athens, everybody, every day, had to go to the market and talk politics. And the word politics is a Greek word. Polis means city. And so it's the business of the city. And so, but the problem is, once it gets larger than a city, and you can't get there every day. And so it breaks down. And so a republic is you take care of your family and your farm, and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. So a republic is where the people are king, ruling through their representatives. So we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. We're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. <laughs> right under God, but it's us being in charge of ourselves. So when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest the system where I participate in ruling, the system where the people are the king. I protest that. It's like, okay, <laughs> if you don't like ruling, somebody will be glad to dictate to your life what you're going to do. And so, so again, was America ever great? Yeah, as, as long as you like oh, I was going through Dusseldorf, Germany, and through their museum, and they had mannequins with dresses and royalty, and then they had these mannequins with drab, brown, and gray. And the little plaque says, the king decided what colors the people could wear, and if you were in a lower class as a peasant, you could only wear grays and browns. 
I mean, how do you like the government, the king, to tell you what to wear? So like Sharia, where women have to wear burqas, you know? Uh, but in America, you have the freedom to decide what color you want to wear. If you like that, you, you like our country, you like America. We have got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. William Federer is with us. He joins us. Uh, he has got a fantastic book, Who is the King in America? And what are the counselors to the king? An overview of 6,000 years of history and why America is unique. William Federer is with us today. It is a, The book is available on Amazon. It is a fantastic, fantastic read. Check out American Minute. AmericanMinute.com or 1-888-USA-WORD. And uh, he joins us today here on our broadcast. We're going to take a brief break with William. When we come back, we are going to uh, try to reconnect with Don Mazzella. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and hang up with you, William, and we'll call you right back here on Skype after our commercial break. Uh, give me about two minutes here, my friend. And uh, we are going to reconnect with William and Don. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we have got more coming up. It is the world famous Cheeky Jaguar Radio Broadcast on Talk America Live! On the network. Well, yet absolutely amazing. The name is David Crines. And he's offering uns things at the beginning of the political season. It's it's become a, a lot of things, but one thing it's not become is uh, is a, a recognition of labor. There used to be Labor Day parades throughout the country. There used to be a, lo- a lot of different things. Now it's just a holiday that people call Labor Day but don't recognize. Long answer to your question, <laughs> Jiggy. But uh, uh, it's the uh, uh, you know, you know, um, it's become more of a, uh, a placeholder. In fact, uh, uh, the, the original thought was to change uh, Martin Luther King's day, uh, Labor Day to Martin Luther King Day, but um, when they, when they were first proposing it, but they finally settled on February his birthday uh, because the unions complained. Um, but um, uh, it, it's interesting. Don't forget the. Uh, there was a, a slogan: If you didn't come in on Saturday, don't come in on Monday. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we've you, got uh, people don't remember that. We've got Don Mazzella with us. Uh, we are going to uh, try to reconnect with our guest, uh, William Fetter. In fact, what I am going to do because we're having so many issues with Skype today, Don, I am just going to call you back on the regular phone here in just a few moments. Um, no problem. I'll just call you back on your regular number. I'll be right with you, my friend. Hold on. We're going to uh, reconnect with uh, William Federer, our uh, our guest. Uh, I, I I just I, I I don't know what is going on with the uh, with the Skype here, but we are going to reconnect with William Federer and uh, get him in here. We're gonna. Do this the old-fashioned way. We're going to do it via the phone. We'll see if William is there. Okay, William, give me a couple seconds here. I'm going to patch everybody in. Hold on, my friend. Just hold on. We are going to call Don Mazzella. 
via his traditional telephone. <laughs> you liked how I did that. Do you like how I did that? I hope you did. Hopefully he picks up. Hopefully he picks the phone up. I'm here. There we are. Okay. I think I've got everybody. William, can you hear us, my friend? Okay, fantastic. I've got uh, William Federer, Don Mazzella, and of course, uh, this is Talk America Live. And um, who is the king in America, and who are the counselors to the king? An overview of 6,000 years of history and why America is unique. William J. Federer with us today here on our broadcast. And um, William, this book, um, absolutely amazing. Tell us a little about the writing process, and then I know me and Don have got some questions for you. Well, it took several years to, uh, I, I had read where the most common form of government in world history is a king. And I literally went back and started reading through, and I took every century from uh, the beginning of Sumerian cuneiform and Nimrod, Tower of Babel, and Hammurabi's Code. And it's basically a code of laws, and if you do a crime against the king, you get killed. You do a crime against the upper class, you might lose an arm or an eye. Do a crime against the middle class, oh, you get a slap on the hand do a crime against the lower class, I'll forget it. I mean, it's a hierarchical system, and it's all based on how close of a relationship you can have. There were 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, and they were considered the, the son of the god Osiris, right? And they were uh, divinely appointed. And so it's this concept that keeps reappearing of, you know, God or the creator giving all the power to this one guy and him being uh, the dispenser of the rights. And King James of England said... Kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land, having power over the life and death of everyone. That's why the founders wanted to get away. They didn't like this one guy claiming that he was divinely appointed. And um, so the idea is that in the Declaration it says, all men are endowed by their creator with certain unable rights. In other words, the creator gives the rights to each individual. And then we choose from amongst equals who's going to fix the potholes in the road? Who's going to fix the bridge? Who's going to defend against the Indians? We put people into positions of responsibility, but we're all equal. And it's a bottom-up form of government rather than a top-down. And it's that the little polarity change happened in the hull of the Mayflower. So the kings, you know, you had the Spanish, they had the first global empire, uh, the Portuguese, the uh, French, um, but then the King of England uh, had the biggest, and kings had colonies. Uh, there were three types of colonies. There were company colonies, where it was a win-win for the king. He risked nothing, spent nothing, he just gives some rich guys a monopoly, and he gets a percentage of what comes in. So he doesn't have to do anything, but these rich guys take all the risks, but he gets a percentage. And so these Virginia was originally a for the Virginia Company, like the British East India Company. Well, the Virginia Company went bankrupt, so the king has to send over a royal crown governor. Now he's ruling this thing directly. Third type of colony is a proprietary colony where the king gives the whole thing as property to a friend. So Lord Baltimore gets all of Maryland. William Penn gets all of Pennsylvania, and so forth. Well, the pilgrims were going to land in Jamestown. Uh, because of a bunch of delays, they're sailing in the winter, and they get shipwrecked almost uh, on the, the coast of Cape Cod. And uh, they try going south, 
But around Cape Cod is what's called the graveyard of ships. 3,000 ships have sunk because the, the beaches are really shallow, and they go out for miles in the ocean, and so boats will get stuck on it, and in a storm they can't get free, and then the waves just smash it to pieces, and so the pilgrims got stuck. And luckily they backed out. The captain said, it's too dangerous to sail anymore. He goes, get back to Cape Cod. He says, everybody off the boat uh, at Plymouth Rock. And so the uh, the pilgrims, like, raise their hand and say, well, who's going to be in charge of us? Uh, there's no king-appointed person on the boat. We were all going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government. Uh, who's going to be in charge? They do something unique. They make they give themselves the authority to start a government. So called the Mayflower Compact. We in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic to pass just and equal laws that shall be thought most necessary, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. This was the polarity change in world government. Instead of top-down rule by kings, in the womb of this little Mayflower is the flip of the switch. It's the bottom-up. It's we, the people, deciding what the laws are going to be, and, you know, and so forth. Well, where did they get this idea? By the way, the painting of the pilgrims is in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. They're kneeling on a boat with an open Bible, and they have their pastor, John Robinson. They got the idea from their pastor. John Robinson is considered one of the founders of the Congregationalist Church, where everybody in the congregation votes. And the King of England didn't like that. And so he chased them out, and they went from England to Holland. And, and so... They basic the pilgrims basically took their church model of government and made it their community model of government, and that influenced the other New England colonies and eventually the U.S. Constitution, which starts off how we the people we're doing this we're not asking permission from some king. Anyway, uh, it's a fascinating book, and there's a lot more there, but I'll take a break and, and pause for you to interject. Don, do you have any uh, in any comments here for our guest? Yeah, well, yes. Uh, first, uh, great uh, revealing history with them. Um, but uh, I guess my first question, are you saying that uh, um, here in America we, we, we developed the idea of a, a bottom-up uh, government? And uh, uh, I, I don't know what is the main thesis of your book. I'm sorry. Right. Well, it's yes, bottom-up government. And then, so... Uh, Virginia was an Anglican colony. The king was in charge of it. And the king sends over a royal crown governor. But the king says, I'm not going to waste any money on this colony. And he tells the governor, you got to raise your own money. So the governor gets to America, and he gets the Burgesses. So there's 25 neighborhoods, and the word for neighborhood was Burge or Burgess. So 25 neighborhood leaders, he gets them together and says, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you've got to cough up some money to pay me. And so they meet, and they said, okay, everyone pays so much. But then while they're there, they say, well, who's going to fix the road, and who's going to defend against the Indians? And they backdoor into a legislative assembly. And the royal governor says, as long as I get paid, I really don't care what else you talk about. And so they get, uh, you know, 150 years of practicing doing all this stuff. And um, so Virginia... Uh, back doors into a legislative assembly, but it's still king-run. It's still got that, that, that acknowledgement of the royal governor. Uh, in Massachusetts, they didn't have that. So in Massachusetts, it was these people. Uh, uh, I'm not familiar, uh, not sure how much the audience is familiar with the history here. Pilgrims come across in 1620, uh, just a couple hundred of them. They do a good job. 
And in 1630, the Puritans come over. Who are they? Puritans and pilgrims are different. Who are the Puritans? So let's flash back over to England. Uh, England has a king named Henry VIII. Uh, he's married to the daughter of the, of the king of Spain. Uh, the daughter's name is Catherine of Aragon. And so um, after 18 years, Catherine does not have a son, so Henry decides to divorce her. The Pope won't recognize the divorce because the king of Spain is the most powerful guy in the world. Right? He controls the New World, controls the Philippines, controls, you know. And so Henry VIII says, you know what, I'm just going to make myself my own Pope. He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And so uh, his advisors suggest to Henry, if he's really serious about breaking from Rome, he needs to stop using the Latin Bible and get himself an English Bible. The Germans have Martin Luther's German Bible, and that helped them to break away from Rome with the Reformation. You need an English Bible. And so, uh, so what happens a couple of years earlier, uh, Henry VIII had William Tyndall birth as a state. William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And so now, it's a couple of years later, the King of England decides he wants to break from Rome. They take William Tyndall's Bible and sort of give it a new name called the Great Bible, and Henry VIII orders a copy of this great Bible to be put into every church in England. The problem was, people began to read it. <laughs> and began to compare what's in this Bible that they can now read in their own language. They began to compare it with what the king's doing. Divorcing and beheading his wives and claiming to be the head of Christ's church. And I mean, you know, he was pretty arbitrary in his, in his ruling. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England. They are nicknamed the Puritans. The king doesn't think he needs purifying, so he persecutes the Puritans. And so, the pilgrims come over in 1620. 1630, you have 16,000 Puritans come across, and they end up making the Puritan faith the established faith. And then you have dissenting pastors breaking away, and they set up, Roger Williams sets up Providence, Rhode Island. Reverend Thomas Hooker sets up Hartford, Connecticut. Reverend John Wheelwright sets up Exeter, New Hampshire. And so you have pastors and their churches forming communities. And the people would go to their pastor and say, Pastor, um, how do we do the government thing? And the pastor would dig into the scriptures, and believe it or not, they looked back to ancient Israel as the example. The first 400 years when Israel came out of Egypt, before they got King Saul, and it's called the Hebrew Republic. And they use that as a model for their colonial governments, which became the model. That's why Connecticut's called the Constitution State. That became the model for the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, yet, if you look at the, uh, uh, when, when the founders were putting together the Constitution, uh, they did at one point offer George Washington the kingship, and he turned it down. Well, uh, one of the great things about uh, Washington, uh, they all knew he would be president, but uh, they said, do you want to be president for life or king? And he said no. And two terms was enough. I mean, uh, it, uh, I, I agree with you where you're, you're going with all this and, and the, to the root of uh, um, uh, pluralism, et cetera. But uh, uh, it was still an undecided issue at the Constitutional Convention, if you uh, read the Madison Notes. 
Yes, yes, you're bringing up a, a very good point. And Washington was twice uh, had the opportunity to make himself king. Uh, there's a, a little anecdotal story. Benjamin West was a painter, born a painter who would paint portraits. He was born in America. Revolution starts, he goes back to England. And as the war is finishing up, he's painting a portrait of King George III. And during these long sessions of painting, um, King George says, well, what have you heard about this Washington? What does he plan to do now that he has defeated the king's army? Benjamin West said, well, the rumor is, Your Highness, that he's going to go back to his farm. The king says, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. In other words, for 6,000 years, kings lusted for power. They killed for power. Anybody that challenged their power was dead. And here's Washington. He has the power. He defeated the king's army, and he goes back to his farm. And um, matter of fact, um, and then the other was the Newburgh conspiracy, where the soldiers hadn't been paid for like a couple of years. And they were going to march into New York, where the capital was at the time, and they were just going to take over. And Washington shows up at the meeting unannounced. And the room gets quiet, and he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a piece of paper, and then he pulls out his glasses, his spectacles. And he says, excuse me while I put on my glasses. He says, I've grown blind in the service of my country. And then he begins to read his notes, and he says, our, we fought, our loved ones have fought and died, they bled, so that we could have the opportunity to have a government without a king, and let's not throw away everything that we fought and died for. Uh, and he folds the note back up, puts it in his pocket, walks out of the room, and the Newburgh conspiracy evaporates. I mean, he could have said, okay, guys, I'm your man. We're going to get your paychecks. And they would have backed him. And, um, uh, and then, as you mentioned, the Constitution does not limit the number of times the president could run. And Washington voluntarily said two terms is enough and went back to his farm. That set a precedent so that every president since has only served two terms, except Franklin Roosevelt got himself elected four times. <laughs> Finally, the U.S. government pushed it through the 22nd Amendment, limiting a president to two terms. It's easy to remember, 22nd Amendment, you it, it, do, do, right? uh, it limited yeah, to two it's terms. It's interesting to note that that particular amendment uh, was the second quickest ever to be accepted by the states. Even though the, the legacy of, of uh, Roosevelt was still very strong, the states quickly adopted that constitutional provision. I've always found that very interesting. What do you think about that? Yeah, again, you're bringing out a very good point. And um, the... Uh, problem is, when somebody's in power, you get a bureaucracy of people around them who are have a financial interest in that person staying in power. Because if they get voted out, they're going to lose their jobs. And so they want to vote for the status quo. They want to vote to stand. We call that the deep state. And there's people that will sabotage any attempts of those that want to cut, cut the budgets and reduce the size of government because they want it to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, matter of fact, the founders <clears throat> looked back to a Roman leader named Cincinnatus. So Rome, for 500 years, was a republic. And they had 600 senators, and they would all gather together and do all their business. And um, for the audience that's not familiar with Rome, uh, 
before the 500 years, they had a king named Tarquin, whose son raped a woman named Lucretia. And she was a virtuous woman, and this destroyed her virtue, and she was so distraught, she gets the other Roman leaders together and commits suicide right in front of them. The Romans get upset and kill King Tarquin, and they make a rule. If anybody in Rome would ever declare themselves king, anybody could kill that, that person without any repercussions. So for 500 years, nobody in Rome wanted to come anywhere close to being called a king. A guy named Publius was one of the founders of the Roman Republic, and he was building a mansion on a hill. Rumors spread that he was thinking of being king. When he heard the rumor, he destroyed his own mansion. And so for 500 years, no one in Rome wanted to come close to being a king until Julius Caesar comes along. And he uh, was in, his family was in debt. He joins the military to escape debt collectors. It turns out he's a good general. He conquers a bunch of Gaul, France, and brings all the booty and gives it out to the Roman people so they like him. He decides he wants to get involved in politics. So he does an under-the-table agreement with Crassus and Pompey. Um, Crassus dies. It turns into a tug-of-war between Caesar and Pompey. And when Pompey gets killed, then Caesar makes himself dictator for life. And, uh, and so anyway, so that's the, how Rome transitions from the Republic to an empire. Uh, it, it's always um, uh, interesting to me the fact that Caesar Augustus never meant, uh, called himself Caesar, never called himself king, always called himself the father of, of Rome. Uh, anyway, but let's get back to um, our, our country. Uh, it, it, do you now have a concern that we, we will end up with a king? Right. Um, the uh, interesting study that I did in my book, Who is the King in America, is democracies and republics, how they fell. And uh, if you can picture a spectrum of power, total government on one side, no government on the other side. Total government, you get a king who rules through fear. No government is anarchy. No government, unless the people have internal morals. Plato called it virtue. Um, and, uh, and then in ancient Israel, for those first 400 years, they didn't have a king. And what motivated them to follow the internal laws is, uh, is the God of the Bible. So if you can picture it, uh, in the Levites were the people that taught them the law. It's like everybody has a, an app on their iPhone. Instead of a GPS telling you where to turn, it tells you how to act. You know, have you downloaded the app yet? And so the Levites were the ones that helped the, the Israelites to download this app called the law. And, uh, and so everybody had it on their own iPhone. They all knew the law because they were taught. But the question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Motivator. There's a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. And then you think, uh, God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country really, truly believes this, you can maintain complete order and security for property with no police. Maximum liberty. Um, but we've seen throughout history, in Israel's case, when they got rid of the consciousness of God and the Levites stopped preaching the law, it says every man did that which was right in their own eyes, turns into chaos, sodomites, banging on doors, raping concubines, and they finally end up with 
King Saul. The rubber band snaps back, and they got King Saul. And um, anyway, so you look in history, there have been philosophers that have wanted to usurp power. Machiavelli, Hegel, Karl Marx, Saul Linsky. Um, and just a, a quick note, Machiavelli lived 500 years ago in Italy. Italy was a bunch of city well, states. Well, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm a little confused. I'm sorry. But but are you, are you, are you saying that we're going down the road towards the king, kingship? Um, I, I, I'm unclear. I'm sorry. You're clearly a very uh, knowledgeable individual. I'm just trying to figure out uh, what all of this will lead us to. Right. So in times of crises, people surrender power. Yes. And so are we in a time of crisis? Right. In times of crises, people surrender their freedoms. And so uh, uh, Machiavelli, Italy was a bunch of city-states, and Machiavelli thought, you know what, if one prince could control all these, it would stop the infighting between these city-states. So in his book, The Prince, he says the end justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy would stop all the infighting between these city-states. That's a good end, so therefore any means necessary for him to get there is justified. So if the king conquers a city, they would hate him. But if the king, ahead of time, paid criminals to kill cows and burn barns and smash windows and set buildings on fire and create domestic crises, the people would cry out for help. The prince would come in and kill the very criminals he bribed. Nobody would know the better for it, and everyone would praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. Uh, I, 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 but are, are you saying in today's world that's where we're going for it? Uh, yeah, so um, so in Machiavelli's sense, it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. In other words, you go around the back of the house and set it on fire, and then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher, and they will pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on crisis to consolidate control. And so this concept is... You got a republic. You got people ruling themselves. You have to create internal crises to cause people to do a knee-jerk reaction to get rid of their, give up their guns, give up their freedom, give them their all their rights to some powerful person that claims to fix it all. And when the dust settles, you will transition back from a republic to a dictatorship. But who do you think is doing that in today's world? Well, for the last generation there's been one party in particular that has been pushing for people to give up their right to own weapons and their right to uh, have speech and power and so forth and under the last president we were seeing this uh, concept of wanting to encourage racial tensions and crises and riots sending the department of justice in and, and even, uh, you know, Lois Lerner and um, the different um, uh, people uh, giving speeches saying that there needs to be more, more rioting, more violence. Why? Because in the, in the rioting, people ask the federal government to come in and help, while the federal government ends up coming in and taking control. And um, but I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Uh, the Machiavellian idea is taking the power out of the people's hands and reconcentrating it into the hands of one person. Whereas our founding fathers were trying to take the hands 
the power in the hands of one person, the king, and separated into the hands of the people. So um, there was another one worth noting in Germany. In the early 1800s, Germany was a bunch of kingdoms. I'd much rather concentrate on today because you brought all of these facts to the fore, and, and obviously you, you've got a, a, a point of view, and I think it would be more helpful to our audience to talk about that point of view because you certainly um, have developed it based on an awful lot of knowledge. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that uh, 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 there are people out there who are, who are trying to um, uh, create the fire in the back part of the house so that they can uh, uh, sell the extinguisher uh, tyrant uh, in the front of the house. Am, am I correct in that? Right. So you have George Soros pumping money into all these groups to create riots. Uh, I lived half an hour from Ferguson, Missouri. I actually spoke in Ferguson, Missouri several times. And 99% of the people rioting in Ferguson were not from Ferguson. They were all bust in. They, and George Soros put $30 million into more, M-O-R-E, Missourians Organizing for Reform and Empowerment. $30 million he puts into this group. Uh, they advertise, you know, in Chicago to get rioters, they get on buses, they go to Ferguson, and they do riots. After the rioting, they actually showed up at the Moore office, and they protested. Uh, and they said, you promised us $5,000 if we would riot and trash Ferguson, and you didn't pay it, so pay up. So they started a little campaign, uh, cut the check, hashtag, and it began to spread. And then they hurried up and cut them in the check to shut them up. Uh, but this was the idea of uh, creating these riots so the federal government would come in and take over the, the police department in Ferguson. I talked to Ed Meese, the former attorney general. He says, wherever these riots took place, in Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, North Carolina, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in Baltimore, and then they would say it's racism, and then Obama's Department of Justice would come in um, and um, uh, take control of the police department. And it was a polarity change. Instead of the sheriffs looking to be accountable to the people that voted them in, these sheriffs are now afraid they're going to be accused of some federal crime. And so all of a sudden, like a magnet, the federal government ends up taking control over all these police departments in all these cities. And um, uh, and then you actually see, under Obama, the bringing in of lots of Muslim terrorists. And, um, you know, any people that were from these other countries that were Christian or other minorities were not allowed in. And he's brought them in, and they put them in every single city, taking over the inner-city Section 8 housing complexes. So now you have Muslim communities in Helena, Montana, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I mean, all these cities, and they begin to wanting to get involved in politics. And the uh, the they, as you look at Europe, they're the number one group that likes to riot and burn cars in Paris and so forth. And so you you bring them in to help create these riots and this destabilization. And then, again, another excuse for the government to say, okay, we're going to come into this community, and it's your fault for pointing out um, that it's these immigrants doing the crime, and they want to take away your freedoms. And I think we were just very short distance from losing it all until there was the election of Trump. If Hillary would have got in, this would have continued. 
Uh, I do feel that's why the midterm elections are so important, because um, uh, when you bring in illegal immigrants, even if they can't vote, they're counted in the census, and the congressmen are divvied up around the country based on population. And so if California lets in more illegal immigrants, they get more of the congressmen. There's 53 congressmen from California alone. And then the electoral votes that elect the next president are based on the number of congressional districts. So you let in the illegal immigrants, you get more congressmen, and then you get to sway the election more. So they have a they have a mm. political reason to bring them in. Well, you've come to the right place to to uh, postulate that. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, what's played down is the fact that Trump won eighty-seven percent uh, of all counties in the United States voted for Trump in the last election. Uh, that's, and that's based on what the New York Times um, uh, electoral map. But, but anyway, so if I'm hearing you correctly, what, what you're saying, if I may paraphrase and make sure I understand, is that, that you worry is the fa fact that under President Obama um, that the writers were brought in uh, to undermine the local police department and encourage federal uh, uh, troops to come in, uh, not troops, uh, government, uh, federal police to come in uh, and, in effect, uh, create zones uh, from which more writing could come about. And you also ma ma manage uh, Mr. Soros. Did I hear you correctly? Right, right. So, uh I don't know if your listeners, I mentioned Machiavelli, I mentioned Hegel, but I didn't get a chance to talk about him in March. But let's fast forward to Saul Alinsky. And why is he important? Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis at Wellesley College on Saul Alinsky. And President Obama was a community organizer with the Alinsky uh, group there in Chicago. Saul Alinsky, uh, in the uh, 1920s, rode around with Al Capone's hitmen in Chicago, Frank Nitti and saw how all you had to do was kill a few people, smash a few windows, and the whole neighborhood would panic and submit to the mob and pay the mob extortion protection money. So Solinsky applied this to politics in his book, Rules for Radicals. He says that you go in and you create crises, and then the people will surrender their freedoms. And so Solinsky, here's a couple of quotes from his book. He says, uh, the first step in community organizing is disruption disruption of the present organization. And then the moment the community organizer enters the community, he dreams only of building a power base, an army. Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, the organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. The community organizer must search out controversy rather than avoid it, for unless there's controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. The organizer's first job is to create the problems, to create the dissatisfaction, to stir up discontent. This has been the strategy played on America for the last uh, presidential administration, is the intentional fanning of racial flames, creating crises so that people will surrender their freedoms to somebody promising to fix it, and you transition to a, a dictatorship. You know, my suggestion is you should uh, rename the books 
um, uh, uh, surrender um, uh, surrender your rights or something like that. You're actually onto something. Uh, You're actually onto something. You know, that is a scenario that I think is still very possible. the, The one thing I always think that saves us is the fact that the Constitution forbids the the army to to act uh, inside the country, except in, in uh, for natural disasters. Um, I, I never can passe passe comatas, and I always right. uh, refer to that. Um, and so the way to get, the way to get around that is to build your own private army. And so Obama was working on that. That was one of the things he he said. He wanted an internal army that was as as powerful as our our outside army. And we under him we saw a um, what do you call it? Um, Basically, the the arming of the police in a lot of these cities with military grade weapons and so forth. So it was in a sense having posse comitatus removed. Um, But uh, again, now Hegel actually made an equation out of it. Uh, like a triangle. Uh, so again, Germany, 1820s, Hegel said, uh, we got these kingdoms fighting against each other, Saxony, Bavaria, Prussia, and he said, if, if one king, the king of Prussia, could control them all, it would be great. So if you can imagine a triangle, one corner is, he called a thesis, the opposite corner he called an antithesis or antithesis, and the top corner of the triangle he called a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. You start off at the first corner, the status quo, and you create the antithesis. In other words, you create a problem that's real bad so that people are happy to settle for your answer. The test is bad, the synthesis. Then that becomes a new starting point thesis, and you create another problem that's real bad. But isn't it it interesting that with the economy, how long as it is, people are too busy to riot? And, and the yeah. fact that the rioting will, will not uh, elicit the same response from the president's office that it did on the President Obama? Right. So you're pointing out exactly what Frederick Engels pointed out. So Frederick Engels and Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. Frederick Engels says you need economic crises and put more small business owners out of work so they'll become dependent on the government and then you'll have more people for your army that you can mobilize to do your rioting. And he says that uh, there has to be a whole wave of, of financial crises to put more people out of work, get them on welfare, get them so they're discontented, and then they'll be willing to riot. And that's how you build your power base of rioters to overthrow the status quo, overthrow the government, so you can set up your day. And then the people that are doing the rioting, Lenin called them useful idiots. They're just tearing down the system, but they have well, no clue. Well, what's well, why have we why have we not seen rioting in the past eighteen months? Right, because we because of the President Trump, we've not had the destabilization of the economy uh, under Obama. It was uh, you know he was putting out of businesses. I lived in Missouri. I ran for Congress in Missouri. We had the last lead smelting company in America in Missouri. And they had all of the top-notch EPA equipment. And the EPA comes in and says, this standard of how much emissions you can do, we're going to take it down to microscopic, teeny little levels. And the company says, there's no way that we can afford this. 
and they shut their doors. And so there's no company left in America that smelt, that, that smells lead, that makes lead. And so we have to buy it from other countries, put people out of work, um, you know. And but under Obama, it was intentionally causing economic crises. Under President Trump, we've seen the economy do great. And yeah, you're right, there's not the, more people are getting off of welfare. Uh, and so there's not the dependency uh, on, on handouts. And, um, but, uh, but I appreciate you, you bring up these questions. And I explore all this in the book, Who is the King in America? The bottom line is the people are the king. And so we need to realize that uh, we're in charge. If you don't like what's happening, you're the one responsible. I tell the story, imagine you're in, in visiting a king. Maybe you're in the Old Testament times, and you're going well, to the well, of Jerusalem. But let, let me uh, let me uh, give you uh, the results of a still unpublished uh, study, which says while um, Americans are happier than they were uh, a year and a half ago, they felt less uh, confident that they were affecting the the, the national wheel in terms of uh, political leadership. What do you say to that? Um, well, the. Uh, uh, I think we're seeing people being limited. Here's Google and, and the Facebook uh, censoring uh, the conservative voice. Uh, a friend of mine is Joseph Farah. He runs World Bet Daily. He says Facebook arbitrarily decided to put all of their news postings on a one-day hold because he did some article that defended Breitbart, and Breitbart did something that got them on the Southern Poverty Law Center list. And because of that, World Net Daily, they, whenever they post breaking news articles, they get put on a hold for one day before it can be picked up, uh, you know, through Facebook and so forth. And he says their visits to their news website went down, like, you know, in half over just uh, a month because of what, and now they're, they're still going down further. And, and I can tell stories like this all over. That there's been a squelching of the, the conservative voice. Um, and it is um, very similar to China. China just announced they're going to have a loyalty index. They got 1.4 billion people. Help, Google is helping them to go through everyone's searches and so forth to build a profile on every person to see how loyal they are to the Chinese Communist government. Wow. And, uh, and so here we have technology working together with dictators. It's no different than the, you know, the King George had the writs uh, of assistance where he could read everybody's mail. And, um, you know, the founding fathers, James Otis, had this big speech that fired up John, John Adams. He says that, you know, you, you shouldn't have the government going through your private mail. It's like, yeah, but here's Google doing that. And so, uh, yes, uh, I think that people, and, and myself included, feel less confident that, um, we're, uh, it used to be I'd post something on Facebook and I would get a 100,000 person uh, view of one post, 100,000 people. I post stuff now and I'm doing good to get 10,000 people to read it. And, um, uh, and so I've seen uh, where I click, I, I want to share one of my uh, Facebook postings uh, and, and with an ad and it'll reject it. It says um, it, that it's political. I said, it's a hundred-year-old, I'm telling the, the history of the 19th Amendment where women can vote, and you're going to tell me that this is political and so you're not going to... It's history. 
And you know, they say anything that could affect the national di- political debate, we're going to censor. It's like, who, who are you to limit me? And, um, and so, yes, people are feeling this um, George Orwell 1984 Big Brothers watching you uh, feeling. And uh, unless it gets turned around, you can see how uh, Hitler has propaganda machine and controlled all the media in the country. Um, it's a little graph that people can follow me. America, the, the country is controlled by laws. Laws are controlled by politicians. Politicians are controlled by voters. Voters are controlled by public opinion. And public opinion is controlled by the media and education. Yes. Media, because you don't know who to vote for unless the media tells you. And education, you know. And so whoever controls media and education controls the country. Agreed. Fantastic. Well, uh, we've we've come to the end of the broadcast here. Before we let everybody go, uh, I want to stay start with our guest, uh, William. Go ahead and uh, give us the information. Where do we find the book? Where do we find you online? All that good stuff. Well, thank you. My website is AmericanMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com, and the title of the book is "Who Is the King in America." Fantastic. Well, uh, Don, before we let you go, how do we get a hold of you online? DonMazella.com. Recalculating.biz are the two best places to get me. Um, And the Food and Wine Insider. Uh, uh, Naturally, I always get a a jiggy show. Thanks for having me. Definitely. I appreciate you guys. Have yourself a wonderful holiday weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, real soon. We'll talk to you next week, Don. You got it. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and James, thank you. It's been an honor being on. I appreciate it, William. We'll talk to you soon. There they go, and there we go.